Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavan here today on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 8th of 4th. I hope you've been well since last we spoke, and I hope you had a chance to listen to the interview we did with Sam Bowman, the former director of the Adam Smith Institute, on the lockdown and whether or not the lockdown should be lifted in order to minimise economic harm and what the balance was there from a public health perspective. I thought that was quite interesting. It was annoying because I didn't do it and therefore I have to give prop to Michael. <laughs> he also set it up. I had no part to play in it, which is always the worst kind of success. Yeah, it's not enough that I succeed. All my all my friends must fail. Wasn't that the uh, the Gore Vidal quote that it's it's actually the successes of your friends that are most difficult to handle? It, well, yeah, I think the actually the first the first quote is um, it's not enough that I succeed, but all my my enemies should fail. But the the corollary is he also says on stage every time one of my friends succeeds, small part of me dies, and that's why Gore Vidal was an ass. Absolutely. Anyway, so I suppose we may as well get back into it. It's a difficult time for people all across the country. I mean, I've seen, I've seen an estimate there that suggests roughly 25% of the country is now unemployed, which is, um, that's a hell of a statistic if it's true. I haven't looked into it, so don't quote me on that. But in a time where shit just seems to be raining down upon society, I was amazed today to hear someone speaking who seemed to have a new and impressive way to make life worse for everyone involved. I, I don't know if you saw this, Michael, but I'm, of course, speaking of the pro- the Professor of Public Health in Trinity, of course. Naturally. Who came out and said that um, we should close down all the off-license because we've got to be worried about uh, our health. And then he made a argument that um, people with liver disease will be taking up beds from, uh, from people who had COVID-19, and that would be terrible, absolutely terrible. I didn't find that argument terribly compelling, and it seemed more of a sort of a... Um, do you remember the Aesop's fable of the uh, the fox and the uh, rooster, Michael? Uh, go on, remind me. So a fox pins a rooster down one day. He says to the rooster that I'm going to eat you because you wake people up in the morning and it's terribly inconveniencing. And the rooster goes, well, I mean, I, I yes, I wake people up, but I make sure that they get up in time to begin their daily work. And so in that way, I am actually a helper of man. To which the fox goes, that's terribly interesting, and then just eats the rooster. <laughs> and the lesson being the people who want to do evil things are never going to want for an excuse to do those things. It's not a reason, it's an excuse. And one very much gets the uh, sense from Professor Joe Barry that, uh, oh look, there's a wonderful crisis that enables me to push for the things I would have pushed for had there not been a wonderful crisis. Yeah, I, it, it reminds me a little bit of, I've mentioned before in, in the context of the crisis, the economic historian Steve Davis, and he was saying what everybody, he asked everybody to list out 10 things they thought would change because of the, as a result of this crisis. And he says, and by the way, if at the end of this list, you discover that most of the things that are going to change are actually things you have always wanted to happen, the chances are your list is not a very good one. And I think this is an example of somebody finding a reason for something they probably always wanted. It's impressive in that he's managed to find a way during a pandemic to suck that little last bit of joy out of people's lives. And I mean, think of the divorces, Michael. Think of the divorces. If 
married couples of 20 and 30 years have to be sober constantly with each other and no way out in their own company yeah I, other i you said you were surprised i i am i imagine you're you're you weren't that surprised this was actually the second iteration we had this around 10 days ago but it didn't seem to me it seemed to land and not make any noise so they've gone at it again maybe they think now that we we, we're, we seem to be moving into an increasingly state this kind of thing might get a little bit more traction oh, i don't know there's there's a lovely picture going around the internet there the other day of uh, an, an elder lady who was being visited by her son to bring her supplies. He found her waiting at the window of her house where she had fashioned a large poster on which was written, please bring more wine. And I think all across the country, the idea that if... I, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and I said, well, in Dublin, and he, I said, well, what, how is the house? He said, it's fine, we're, we're okay. The off-license delivers. There is... I, when you hear public health people talking about this, and they start talking about increased usage of alcohol. And you sort of go, well, it's not really a normal time for people, is it? Increased usage of alcohol over a long period of alcohol abuse can be very destructive. Literally going to people and going, you can't leave your house. There's nothing <laughs> to do here. If read a bit, I suppose, listen to some music, get drunk. Those are your options. Yeah, I tell you what. If they get this through, I promise you, the next thing will be they'll be sending men around to snip the wires on your internet. Obviously, there are arguments from personal freedom here. And also, this is just massive na- nanny statement. There's a massive whiff of mother knows best about this. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of people at home drinking. Not on my watch. Oh, having fun. But also, even from a sort of public health perspective, because immediately, if you say we should shut all off license, two things come to mind. And the first is this. We have seen concerns raised over the course of the COVID-19 outbreak and as we move into lockdown about uh, victims of domestic abuse. Yes. And that these people are now going to have to spend more time with people who are uh, physically or mentally or emotionally abusive. And all I can think is, if any of those people are heavy drinkers or alcoholics, I don't see a situation in which they have to stop drinking is going to really make that a better place to be. Well, we don't know. I mean, it may be that some people become abusive when they're drunk. It may also be that some people who are not abused when they're drunk, if you have you force them to become sober, will become very less unhappy. But one thing that will seriously happen, you're going to have a lot of people in withdrawal. I mean, yeah, you, you, you would seriously have lots of people going through. An alcohol withdrawal is very, very difficult and dangerous. More so, I remember reading a couple of papers, actually we were talking about it, than some forms of opiate uh, withdrawal. And the doctors don't need to deal with that. It's one of the few withdrawals that I can think of, of an, any narcotic substance that can outright kill you. Um, it causes hallucination. It causes... It's not a pleasant time, particularly if you're doing it involuntarily. And the DTs, delirium tremens, can last between two and five days. You're talking about pretty much every hospital in this country dealing having to deal with every alcoholic in this country on a rolling basis over the next couple of weeks because some will hoard alcohol mm-hmm. in the middle of an it basically an involuntary detox i tell you are you going to tell me this so some of them are not going to start drinking hand sanitizer i mean some might but if he's saying this should be done in order to open up beds but if we have every alcoholic going into a hospital at some point, that's not opening up beds. I don't know why people... I mean, this suggestion would what? Also, you can't just close the off-license. You're going to have to close down the drink section in all of all the supermarkets. Well, I think his, his argument is that the supermarkets are enough. 
and therefore close down all the off-license. But Dennis, Dennis just being mean. That's all it is. He's not stopping people drinking. He's just making them walk farther for drink. It does It does sound like his issue maybe, maybe with off-license deliveries. I mean, I know a lot of people who are... Like, they're spending an incredible amount on wine. Well, I know that uh, uh, if I were drinking If, if wine, you were still in the business, this would be a golden arm. Oh, God, yeah. And do you know what I suspect? I don't know, but I, I'd be curious to see afterwards if anybody looks at this. I suspect that if you have a wine drinker, and I'm just thinking of my, if I was in the situation, I suspect that people are probably drinking better wine. I know if I was sitting at home in the old, and I don't normally drink at home, but if I was thinking, well, I'm going to have a couple of glasses of wine at night, just because, well, it, it's something to do. It's part of a ritual to get through the day. I think I would probably go for better wine rather than a, gl- a something to glug in front of the telly. It's something to actually have an experience. So I think it would be interesting to see if what, if, if the sales of your know, sort of over 10 quidders went up. This is Gary's, I'm sure. This is just a manifestation of the fact that there are, there's a certain core of people in public health and in other areas in Ireland who are just simply against drink. Oh, obviously so, but... If you're going to present it and say this is public health, thing, the two things I can see immediately happen if this was implemented. Alcoholics involuntarily detoxing and ending up in hospital DTs, which no one wants to deal with because that just doesn't sound like a great time. Yeah. And I would also expect to see a substantial increase in domestic violence because in domestic violence situations, they tend to respond heavily to stressors. So violence increases as stressing is basic. Okay. And if you take someone who is a heavy alcohol drinker or is an alcoholic and you suddenly remove that from them, yes, there will be people who are primarily violent when they are drinking, but you will also have a lot of people who are now under additional stress and will start to lash out because of them. Uh-huh. So I'd fully expect an increase in, um, in domestic abuse rates and probably a substantial one. Now, I'm not sure if there's any research on that because this is not really a situation that occurs generally. You can't generally involuntarily detox a great number of people and then see how they react. While keeping them in their house and not letting them go for a walk. Yeah, I mean, it's basically detention similar to prison, but they have full access to the person they're abusing, who is probably going to be treated as basically a cross between a stress ball and a piñata. And that's a pretty horrific scenario, actually, when you put it like that, being in prison but with access to the object of your abuse. That's a horrible scenario. Absolutely, and and that's why concerns have been raised about it. And I think at this point, what we don't want to be doing is putting more and more stressors on these people. Now, I mean, personally, my primary objection to this is that people are adults. They should be let live their lives. And this is just rampant nanny statism. But if Professor Joe Barry wants to come at this from a public health perspective, I think it's personally perfectly reasonable that we meet him on that ground and simply say, well, this sounds moronic, purely on that basis. Anyway, having... Dealt with the professor, the good professor, fairly unequivocally. I'm sure he's a lovely person. I'm sure he is a fine person, a, a fine academic who genuinely cares about his subject, but maybe on this issue is just, in our opinion, wrong-headed. Moving on from that, from one matter of public health to another matter of public health. The World Health Organization has issued new advice on the usage of masks. Uh, you may have noticed over the last while, I know we've been talking about and. We've had like two weeks wondering about the HSE's advice and the World Health Organization advice because they seem to differ substantially from the pieces of research that have been coming out on COVID-19 transmission infection across the world since this happened. You've started to see public health authorities in different countries start to come out in favor of masks. And the World Health Organization is basically softening its stance on masks and saying that there are certain situations in which they might be useful, but they're still not recommending them to people. Um, and I know in, I think it was, was it Sunday we were talking about the Yale study, which I didn't link on the last podcast, but I will yep. link below this, which had 
engineers, medical professionals, economists, some people from the Yale Management School doing a cost-benefit, effectively a cost-benefit analysis on masks. And it was pretty unequivocal that a universal wearing of non-medical grade masks, cotton masks, was the most reasonable public health standard. So it, it's it's also I, I don't know if have you read the um the the guidance or the guidelines that the WHO has now put out on this, Michael? They put them out there. I think. Yeah, I did. I I I read the the guidelines, the the WHO guidelines, which are shall we say it's an evolution of their previous guidelines. There's a, the stance. Is che- but it's it's a it's a bit like they want to get there, but they don't want to get there yet. Somehow the HS the HSC or the 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 the, the, the guidelines in Ireland are again that odd phrase that I referred to before, which is the evidence does not support. Now you made a point off here, Gary. That there's there is an element in when you look at medical research, med- the medical approach to data, that if something is not proven to be almost a hundred percent effective or almost a hundred percent safe then it's just, no, we can't do that. And I think that that's a, if that is part, maybe that's part of the problem here. The uh, paper written by the the group in Yale, it seems to me, makes a very powerful case. Even on the basis, they say, even if you take that it has a 10% efficacy at, at, at the level of protection, then you're talking about a saving, a dollar saving between three and $6,000. And they believe that actually, the actual saving is the actual efficacy is more like forty to fifty percent. Now, a point they do make is if you're talking about the use of the kind of specialized protective masks that health professionals would use in a hospital situation, they are not suitable for these by lay people because lay people simply will not use effectively. And actually, the cloth masks have the same level of efficacy. Yeah, I mean, you you could individually, the public could use N95 masks as effectively as a uh, a trained medical person. Presuming you went to the effort to learn how they're actually used. Yeah. But I mean, you're talking about every time you wear one doing things like seal tests and figuring out how to actually test them to make sure they're properly contoured and sealed to face, which is a lot of time for what looks to be relatively little benefit, given the, the risk profile of most people. But I did want to... Um, there are a couple of weird things in, in the World Health Organization. One is that there is, a, there is a situation where they say you should absolutely wear a mask, which is if you're sick. Yeah. But we also know that the majority of people, or, well, it's difficult to tell because in some places it's the majority, in some places it's not. There are massive differences in how countries are actually testing for this thing. Uh, it is, I mean, you want to talk about failings of the WHO. The, uh, the fact there is no universally accepted system of uh, analyzing testing results is a massive missed opportunity but anyway we know that a great deal of people at the very least are going to be they're going to be asymptomatic or so close to asymptomatic that they don't know they're sick well if we just take that right they say wear them if you're sick now one of the things that we have been told from the very beginning and we we won't know anything for certain about this until that blessed day when all of this has passed by and people are able to actually analyze the data properly. But one of the things we have been told and they're fairly confident about is that a lot of people will have this virus, will be infectious, but will be so asymptomatic that they don't know they have it. Now, therefore, if there's there are people who should be wearing masks but won't because they don't know they're Secondly, if we look at the uh, incubation period, right? Now, even if you do display symptoms, there will be a period of time when you are 
not you're you are asymptomatic because you just you haven't developed symptoms. The normal incubation period for this is two to fourteen days. However, there are possible outliers of up to twenty-seven days reported. Right now, it may be the case that it, the real outliers that you're actually talking about a reoccurrence or a secondary infection. But the current the current data that they're giving out says that the outliers are up to twenty-seven days. Now, if that's the case, again, we're going to be talking about people who will be sick and will develop symptoms, but at some stage will be infectious, but won't know they're infected. Now, it seems to me that the simplest thing to do, if, as as the study suggests, wearing a cloth mask, and WHO accepts this, wearing a cloth mask for people who are infectious significantly, very significantly reduces the opportunities for a contagion. Well, if that's the case, and how much, I mean, cloth masks, are very cheap. Thing they talk there about how you shouldn't wear it when you're sick and things like that. But in the same document, in the initial guidelines document they brought out on masks on the sixth of this of April, they accept and they talk about um, people in um, who are either asymptomatic or are in the pre-symptomatic period can infect others. And here's the thing: if you assume you are sick, and if you don't know you're sick, and therefore wear a mask, if you are sick, you can transmit to others. And if everyone follows that behaviour, then you would see a mass curtailment of the spread. And they accept that. But then they go on to say that, well, perhaps you should use it when, you know, if you're in a place where social distancing or the wash of hands can't be done, where surely the if you wanted to get the greatest impact, you'd say, do all of them. Absolutely. And also, one of the, the constant public health messages that WHO and countries around the world have been saying to people is, behave as if you were infectious. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> They've been saying that constantly. And then when it comes to masks, they go, oh, well, don't use them unless you think you're sick. Or you're not saying that I should think I'm sick. Is that not your exact point of how I should behave? So... Th- this demand, this begs the question, okay, there mu- they must perceive that there is some downside to wearing masks. Because otherwise, it seems to me, for a piece of cotton, which is going to cost pennies, there must they must feel that there is some downside to I would say there are two things. And one of them is, is a product purely of the WHO and a wider problem. And they go into, into the document uh, as well. They, they talk about the risk if people start wearing a high-grade medical mask, respirators, yes. that there will be even more of a shortage for medical workers. Obviously, absolutely no one wants. That's a reasonable point. We absolutely. don't want to that. I would say the other problem they have is a bit political and personal. The WHO has spent a great deal of time saying that people shouldn't wear masks. Yeah. If it turns around and then says, oh, actually, according to the research we have, masks could see... Uh, they could stop ten to forty percent the virus. They can if if virus if a if virus droplets come into it, they, we would expect to stop ten to forty percent. Um, that's a colossal fuck up that killed people. Yeah, and the point there is that even if they had done nothing else, the WHO is supposed to be a science-led organization, and one of the simple things you do is when you get new data which tells you new things. You change your position. Sam made the point. Sam was say, saying to me, I was on air off. Initially, when they talked, he was rather sceptical about the masks and how effective they could and what real difference they would make. But he made the point, one of the reasons why he supports the restrictive measures is because it buys time. He said, in the time that we have we have had, in in two weeks, just we have gone from this position to this position. These people have done this paper. They've looked at the data and they've come out with this position. We have learned something. And if that is... The position that they have is a reasonable position and reasonably well informed. They are decent scientists doing a decent paper. Well, then 
the what WHO would say, okay, listen, we have new data. The data suggests that actually our previous advice was wrong. That's what you should simply do. And I don't think anybody would throw stones at them for changing their opinion because they had new data. But they're behaving more like a political organisation than, than a health organisation. I think that's the problem. And because their behaviour now seems to be political, and you're starting to see certain countries' medical establishments are now effectively going against the WHO guidelines and just announcing on an ad hoc basis that you know, we, we recommend everyone wears masks or on certain other things as well. And that creates a very strange situation where it's, it's everything about this is becoming very political very quickly. Okay, right or wrong, for example, in Italy now, if you go shopping, you are mandated to wear a mask. And if you go to a supermarket and you're not wearing a mask, there was a case that a friend of mine was telling me in Milan there last week of some teenage boys, it's always teenage boys, went into the supermarket, weren't wearing masks, were told they should be wearing masks, they responded in a smart aleck way, I got the shit bitten out, beat out of because of it. Everybody harsh, but in Italy, fair. <laughs> harsh but fair. So it's everybody in Italy now. When you go out in these social situations, everybody's wearing a mask. Now in Eastern Asia, there has been a longer, I don't know, would say tradition of wearing masks anyway. So they are much more open this idea, and it seems to be that there is a correlation between those places where there's a lot of mask wearing and lower infectivity anyway. But if the concern is that people will become real, I. Their concern is that people will be, they say, will become relaxed and less careful because they will have a false sense of security because they're wearing a mask. I simply don't believe that's true. I just, I think right now the state of mind that people, at least in Ireland, are, is that the addition of a mask will not make them change their hand washing, touching, sanitizing, and not social distancing behavior. No, I, I don't think that. I think you might see certain people do that, but I don't think you see any widespread impact of that. And I would suspect the WHO also doesn't suspect, also doesn't think that you would see uh, a widespread reduction in those behaviours. I mean, if you were to look at protective gear that you thought was actually quite useless, or not useless, but actually potentially dangerous, I would actually say gloves. I absolutely agree with you. I am, I am seeing a lot of people wearing, well, not a lot, because I'm not going out very much. But like when I go to the shop, I see a lot of people wearing gloves and basically no one wearing masks. And the thing with gloves is from a cross-contamination point of view, the research I've seen says they are absolutely lethal because everything you touch will transfer. In a medical setting, you would be changing gloves at regular intervals. But also if you're wearing gloves, you can't wash your hands. Exactly. So basically you're just touching everything and transferring it around the place. And then even when you take the gloves off, it's easy to uh, contaminate yourself as they come off. Whereas a mask, if the mask gets contaminated, you're not going to start rubbing the mask on things. No, no, unlikely. And also, you're most, I think you're much more aware of a mask. It's a weird, abnormal thing. So you're, you're conscious of it. Gloves people become very habituated. I, I see in supermarkets people going to get the trolley and they, they put gloves on to handle the trolley. Now, what I do is, I haven't been out shopping for a little while, but what I was doing, I had my little spray and I sprayed the trolley with a, with a, with a, an alcohol-based disinfectant. And I sprayed up and down the handle and then, I, when, I, when I got the opportunity, I, I then did, I sanitized my hands and when I came home, I washed my hands. And I think that's, that's the more sensible thing. I was saying to you, I worked in, I had a, in the food business and most of the time you see where people are handling ham, cheese, and they use gloves. It was my policy that we didn't use gloves, which was the recommended HACCP policy was you washed your hands, you touched the food, you washed your hands again. And it's actually a far more sanitary way of doing it. 
because people be, they forget to change the gloves. I was I gave you the example at work. The best example I saw of the correct or sensible use of gloves once was in a deli in Italy, where the only time the man put the gloves on was when he handled money. When he was picking up the cheese or the ham or the salami or whatever it was, he did it with clean hands. He washed his hands. He did, and then then you gave him the money to take the money. He put a glove in his hand, took the money, put it till took the glove off and washed his. Because money is the only dirty thing in the shop. Well, yeah, I mean, control everything behind the counter and exactly. money is absolutely filthy. But I, I, I would actually say, uh, no, to be fair, the WHO and the HSE both say don't wear gloves. But it is weird that so many people are wearing gloves and so few people are wearing masks. For, where from what I've seen on this... There's no discussion about gloves. They're not, they're not saying people, by the way, don't wear gloves. We're not hearing that. No, if you go on to their, into their recommendations to both the HSE the documents of the WHO, they do say it, but it hasn't come up at all, whereas masks keep coming up. Um, but gloves, I just sort of think, it's very easy to uh, touch things without realising it. People will touch masks when they're wearing without realising, in which case you can cross-contaminate the mask or your hands if the mask is contaminated. But it's not as immediate as gloves. Like you take your phone out, you check your watch, anything like that. It just seems like a, a vector for moving stuff around. I remember when this started, I was uh, in Pierce Station, and there was a guy there doing, um, he was selling food. And he was wearing gloves. Yeah. But in, the entire time I was looking at him, he never changed his gloves. Oh, that's classic behaviour. <laughs> that, that if you picked something up, you were just going to immediately transfer it to the next person. Yeah. It gave no protection to anyone. But it, I think it makes people feel safer, and it looks good to other people to a certain degree. It makes you look like you are taking care. But um, I would suspect that gloves should just be a no and masks should be a yes and wash your hands. Yeah, and I would say to anybody out there, if you're going out, I would definitely, from what I've seen, don't be embarrassed about it. Don't feel awkward. If you have a cloth mask, or if Sam was saying, you know, if you know someone who can make them, make up a few and wear them and you'll be doing yourself a favour or potentially doing somebody else a favour. Because it's not just about protecting me from you, but protecting you from me. I mean, what we what we're seeing in ideal now actually would be the government quietly reaching out to various Instagram influencers yeah. and trying to make the homemade mask the hottest accessory of the season. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we may uh, we may indeed see that quite. Um, I was I was I I said that I think I'm right in saying that O'Neills have turned over production to making masks. They they have masks and gowns. I think they had. Um, they had not laid off, furlonged a great number of their staff, and then they switched over to making masks and gowns. I hope they keep the maroon colour. Oh, right. Just so you can pick them out. <laughs> a Galway mask. Uh, but actually, speaking of sort of old-timey things and things changing, I, uh, I don't know if you saw this. I saw a, a tweet someone had put up, and it was about a COVID-19 um, expert panel. And they, they were saying something like, the panel was all white men, I think, and maybe one oh, white woman. Oh, yes, yes. And they're like, this is a manual. It's 2020. You've got to look, look after diversity. And yes. it was interesting because before now on social media, that was a standard thing. Like, even the name Manal. Yes, it's a weird thing. If, if you haven't heard it before, it's just a panel that has only men on, uh, which this apparently was. Or no, if it had was, a woman, they were white, so, was, so it didn't count anyway. There was a white, anyway. a white blonde woman who happened to have a PhD in a as well. You know, but the the response to it was great because um, it was just people going basically fuck off. Like before, this was kind of cute, but this is actually important. So, no, you don't get to do this anymore. <laughs> but even yeah. I was looking at it, and it sort of felt kind of quaint and old-fashioned. 
Yeah, that was then. From the old times. That was when we had nothing to worry about. We had nothing to worry about. So identity politics was simply something you engaged in. And, you know, we all had to pretend we cared. Do you know what? Actually, it starts... You know that that phrase, it became... It was a cliche. First world problem. That really has a resonance in that context, I think, now. That you... Oh, that's a first world problem. Because... A problem where we didn't have a problem. So let's, we have to, now we have a problem. We don't need to invent any. But there was just a wonderful sort of, because they really expected people to be like, this incredibly important technical panel on COVID-19 yeah. should be cancelled or changed because there's not enough uh, ethnic minority and visible minority on it. And the general response was just sort of, we couldn't give a fuck. Do they know what they're talking about? Great. And I am sure that actually, if you look at many of the panels around, they are in wonderfully ethnically different uh, because lots of many wonderful experts in medicine in Asia, in India, in the United States, also. But people aren't people aren't looking at that. They're looking at how good a researcher is this dude, how good a researcher is this woman, and oh great, okay, let's, please you do more. Even old white men suddenly have value. Yes, even old white men suddenly have value when it turns out that expertise could be the thing keeping your grandparents from dying. Or even yourself. Or even yourself, or your parents, or your children. Then it turns out people are a lot more discerning about this sort of bullshit. The old-fashioned sense of the word discriminate starts to come back. You know, I think we have to discriminate here. It's a very discriminating choice. I would love to see someone talking about the patriarchal nature of a... Education and formal certification oh, yeah. in light of a COVID-19 power, just to see the public bring out the torches and pitchforks. But it do, it's, it's, it's only been a couple of months. That sort of identity politics does just seem kind of quaint. Like it, I'm curious to see what happens when this ends, if we just immediately go back to it. But it just sort of feels like its moment has passed, at least for the minute. Because I think people actually have a problem now. As yeah. opposed to having to make a problem. Mm-hmm. They have a re- there's something real to worry about and they're worried. So. And I mean, after this, as I said, that stat saying that it could be the case that 50 or 25% of uh, Ireland is now unemployed means that after we get out of this, we're going to keep having a problem. Yeah, no, we would hope that at least a, a, a fairly large chunk of that short-term form of unemployment, um, the discussion of whether or not we're looking at a U-shaped or a V-shaped recession, well, that's one that we're, that's ongoing. The best responses, the economic responses to managing the economic consequences is obviously one that's going to become a fairly serious one in the next... Already has been looked at, it's going to continue yeah, to having, be an issue. There is quite a debate on that, and I'm not on the fence, but I think the debate is of limited use at the minute, because a lot of it just depends on how long does this take, and how Absolutely. bad does it get. That's the question. I mean... I think Sam made a very good argument for the restrictions as they stand on the basis of a certain time frame. But if the time frame starts to expand and expand and expand, well, then we're going to, you know, then there is a point. We don't know. We just don't know. I mean, at what point this starts to become a cure which is worse than disease. I think at the moment, there's, the arguments are pretty strong in favour of being roughly where we are. But that's not that may not always be the case, and we just don't know. And it's, that's one of the horrible things about it, I suppose. And that's where we we're all deeply uncomfortable is the fact that we don't. It's unknown. It's not even unknown unknowns. We know exactly what we don't know, and until and but time time is going to be a large factor. And hopefully, we'll get a better sense in the next month or so about what our situation is here. 
but we don't even know globally how it's going to affect. How will it affect? Will it, how will it affect Africa, South America? Are we going to have a second wave? If we do have a second wave, is it going to be more manageable, or is it going to be more diffuse and they're more? more what difficult? is this going to do to India and countries yeah. that are yeah. very populous but have very limited access to medical facilities and hand sanitation? But I think we can all hope, Michael, that. Uh, you know, by this time next month, we can all uh, say, as the Chinese are now saying, that there have been no new deaths in the country. Although the Chinese are now reporting that they have big problems with uh, new infections coming from Russia. Yes, it's the, the dirty foreigners. Uh, Nigeria was also um, mentioned. I am told, I've been, I was sent a video there the other day. Uh, after the after the Chinese announced there had been no new deaths, and it was a video of a, a body bag in yeah. the, the middle of the night being bundled into a van. They said it had come from then when the um the Chinese had said there were no deaths. I couldn't verify it, so I didn't report on it. It wouldn't terribly surprise me if true. Yeah, Gary, I can tell you one thing we know for uh, I would well I say for, but I I'm going to say with a, a, a certain deal of certain that the statistics that we're seeing in China are what you would call technically made up. I I would I would strongly be of that opinion as well. They've been lying about their GDP for years. They've expelled Western journalists. It looks like the local bureaucracies made a hames of even the classification. I was able to find reports from doctors which said that um, the hospitals had reclassified COVID-19 deaths so that the stats wouldn't look as bad. Okay, just that's, this is one of the things that you talk, I was talking about that just made up. Right, Europe, if you look at Europe, the, one of the countries that seems to be doing best, and it's a bit of a mystery, uh, with some total mystery, and some, there are explanations, but not sufficient. Germany, at the moment, has a, a rate of 19 deaths per million population. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, France has almost an identical number of cases, mm-hmm. but is looking at deaths per million of 137. Mm-hmm. Now, France is far less testing. But if you look at Switzerland, which has more testing per million of population than Germany does, Switzerland still has 88 deaths per now, what would you... Now, you probably know the answer to this, so it's not fair, but <laughs> do you know the num- the official number of deaths per million in China? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. I do have it written down somewhere. It's well, very low. I'll tell you again, bearing in mind that Germany has 19, China has two. Yeah, yeah, that... Because, um, you know, Michael, I, I remember seeing the videos of armed police or, or army welding people into their apartments and patrolling the streets at gunpoint. And I remember just thinking, you know what? This is absolutely something the CCP would do for a couple of thousand deaths. Because these are people who really care about human life. China has two deaths per million. The worst country, it's a very small country, is San Marino, which has 1,002 deaths per million. If you take a bigger country, Spain has 300 deaths per million. Spain has 150 times more. I find that unlikely. I I find that unlikely as well. I did, there were some reports on this. One of them came from American uh, intelligence, so take that as the cravat, or caveat even. Yeah. It's a very, very different Slightly thing. Different. Yeah, yeah. I get a lovely cravat that says CIA on it. Yeah. Um, uh, they, were, they were making the argument that there had been a massive underreporting of deaths, largely due to local officials not wanting to look bad. And that is that is actually a traditional problem with dictatorships, particularly where the dictators can have your entire family picked up, shot at a whim, that it strongly incentivizes the falsification of data at all levels, which tends to make dictatorships very inefficient because yes. everyone is lying to the dictator to make things look better. 
I remember reading, if you haven't read it, it's a rattling good read, The Diaries of Count Ciano. Ciano was Mussolini's foreign minister. And when Italy eventually goes to war, uh, having waited for a bit, decided if they really wanted to. If, and when France fell, they thought, OK, that's a chance to take it by France. And Mussolini was organising his army divisions here, there and everywhere. And <laughs> now that they're actually going to war, the generals were, and others were getting slightly embarrassed and shuffling, saying, you know, you know, those you know, those 5000 tanks we said we had. Yeah. Turns out, maybe not, maybe more like 500 and so on forth. It went. They didn't even, they turned out they, they, they didn't, they overestimated the number of shoes they had. So they had to send them off to France invading the paper shoes. And that's what happens in dictatorships. You know what they have to, they want to hear. So you tell them because otherwise you, you're going to be in trouble. No, I mean, I'll go back to the thing that was reported just before Western media banned from the country, which was that China uh, factories in Wuhan were told to turn on all the machines and turn on all the lights so that the basically the authorities could point at electrical usage in order to show that the region had recovered. Yeah. And then a reporter got into one of the factories and there was no one there. But everything was running. But that's that was what the with the economy they've been doing for a long time. So what the, the, the central government sends instructions out to the various provinces that this year their target GDP growth is seventeen percent. Now if, as has been for a while, probably the case, they were nowhere near getting 70% of What the local province did was they just built stuff, built bridges and built roads and built factories. Com- useless, empty, unnecessary uh, waste of money. But it was, it did then, of course, generate apparent economic activity, which reflected the B figure. So central government was happy. You know, they broke some windows. Yeah, they broke some windows. They built some pyramids. So uh, the the figures from China are very... very oh, actually, you you might not have seen this. I didn't mention this to you. Just a, a nice aside. Remember when we were talking about uh, Taiwan reached out to the World Health Organization to tell them about uh, human-to-human COVID transmission way before the Chinese? Yes. I read in The, uh, the Economist, which don't worry, Michael, I don't subscribe to anymore. Someone sent it to me. <laughs> okay. Because it's it's turned mostly to garbage. Sadly. The WHO admitted to the to the Economist that they hadn't even responded to Taiwan when they wrote to them, <laughs> and the Economist openly said that this was because of fear of Chinese reaction. So basically, they got a letter saying, "Oh, by the way, there's human to human transmission of this uh, thing, which could be a, a you know potentially a pandemic." And the WHO was like, mm, it'd "Be socially awkward to answer that, so let's just ignore it ever happened." They didn't even say thank you for your interest. We have taken note of your of your of your 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 mail, and when the person dealing with this has returned to their desk, we will try and get back to you. Um, which I think doesn't uh, doesn't bode well for the WHO. The a couple of American senators are now calling for, depending on their mood, the head of the WHO to leave or the WHO to be dissolved. And you know what? Not a bad time to push for it. I think when no. this is over. China's PR offence may work, and they may actually, depending on where you are in the world, they may come out of this pretty well. Very difficult to see the WHO coming out of this in um, any kind of working order. Well, they'll, they'll get a while yeah. after this before they're put down. I'm ho- I'm hopeful, maybe up excessively, so that what this may finally do is wake people up to the fact that, okay, we have known to a degree for a long time that large parts of the, the UN is a, is a corrupt, uh, it's... it's it's because it's a democracy that means that you get dictators and kleptocrats and monsters getting sitting in in the in the hall there and get the same votes as peaceful democracy. We have a situation where China is being appointed to oversee human rights. 
Oh, that was a good one. You know, uh, which is along with places like I don't know Somalia and Saudi Arabia, these places you know with rich a rich and deep tradition of respecting human rights. Turns they out get, a shocking amount of the members of the uh, Human Rights Council execute homosexuals. Yeah, which, it's just uh, a shocking amount, really. The problem with the United Nations isn't that it's that it's incompetent or that it's corrupt, because lots of things are are those. The problem is that it has acquired. A certain aura about it, which means the statements that come out attached to the words, a United Nations body has said, United Nations decided, United Nations directed. And God knows we've seen this done in Ireland in politics a number of times where people trot out some United Nations committee, United Nations sub-body. People have to start being aware that it's it, it, in the case of WHO, being incompetent and corrupt is not just a question of being aware. It's actually dangerous. It puts people's lives and well-being at risk and it can do so at a very wide scale across the world and it's time that we started you know the league of nations did its job failed and we dispensed with it i don't see what would basically be worse in the world if we decided at the time the united nations either was radically reformed or just quietly disposed and i know that new york would be perfectly happy to, to see the, the the disappearance of all these people who apparently you uh, park, uh, never pay their parking tickets and uh, block causeways constantly. It, it's 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 a shambles of an I like the way you went from a, like a very high level analysis of the problems with the UN to a very very low level. Well, I happen to know a guy. I happen to, uh, I, I happen to know a guy who worked in in the in the NYPD, and he said that one of the things he said it was ridiculous, and he quite rightly this point you made. You know, in a city that had at different times many, many serious criminal problems. One of the things that drove them absolutely wrong was the way UN, UN officials just flouted every bylaw and every traffic regulation and never got called because he said, I'm UN, I'm UN. Most, he said that most people in the, in the New York Police Department would happily shoot the uh, various representatives of the UN because they were just so bloody arrogant and, as I corrupt. I mean, it might bring us to a better world. It, yeah, anyway, better worlds, dangerous the idea that dangerous think, terms, dangerous things, these better worlds. But anyway, I think that is that is us for the week. We will be back on Sunday. Um, I think we're still planning the Gutman. Yeah. Interview. I'm not Paddy. I think has just finished the prep work on that, so I'm not sure if that's going to be a Sunday or Monday. We'll probably put it on Monday and do sort of the the standard Sunday affair. But uh, if you don't see us on Sunday, you will at least get to listen to a harrowing tale of. Organ harvesting for financial gain. And really, what else could you do on a Sunday? The sun will be out. The children will be laughing. A man who was put forward for a Nobel Peace Prize will be whispering to you about what the Chinese do. Children who have lungs that are valuable. With a cup of coffee. What what, what better way to start your morning? Anyway, until then, it's goodbye from me. All the best. <laughs>